KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. Hitch, however you want to refer to him, he's a filmmaker who's left an indelible mark on cinema. His career spanned the silence and the talkies, black and white, technicolor, and 3D, plus film industries on both sides of the pond. He worked primarily in the suspense thriller genre, but found great diversity and nuance within it. His 1960 film, Psycho, is often cited as the first slasher film and the granddaddy of all the Freddies, Jasons, and Michael Myers. Five years ago, his film Vertigo knocked Citizen Kane off the top slot of Sight and Sound's list of the 50 greatest films of all time. Although he made his last film in 1976, Family Plot, and passed away four years later, his influence on movies and viewers is still felt today. As a testament to that, TCM is once again partnering with Ball State University and Richard L. Edwards, this time to present an online course about the master of suspense. Want to master the master of suspense? TCM presents 50 Years of Hitchcock, a free online interactive learning experience from Ball State University. Get an immersive look at one of cinema's greatest artists, Alfred Hitchcock, with multimedia course materials, games, and more. Plus, you'll be part of an active community of fans just like you. Use hashtag Hitchcock50 to join the conversation every Wednesday and Friday night in July when TCM features Hitchcock's greatest films. Go to Hitchcock. 50.canvas.net now to start your in-depth experience. Plus, TCM will be screening a nearly complete collection of Hitchcock's films, including some of his silent work, for viewers to enjoy in July. Whether you grew up with Hitchcock's films or his TV shows, or the various spoofs and homages that came later, you probably know something about his work. Maybe it's the notion of the MacGuffin, that thing or character that could set a Hitchcock film in motion and keep the plot going, although it ultimately proved to have no real significance. Or maybe it's the theme of the wrong man, as Cary Grant so deliciously played him in North by Northwest. Hey, wait a minute, what's that supposed to be? Cars waiting outside. You will walk between us saying nothing. What are you talking about? Let's go. Let's go where? Who, who are you? Near errand boys carrying concealed weapons. His is pointed at your heart. So please, no errors of judgment I beg of you. Oh, come on, fellas. What is this, a joke or something? Yes, a joke. We were laughing in the car. Come. Oh, this is ridiculous. Or maybe it's just the staccato strains of Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho that still sticks in your head. genius was his ability to blend his meticulously executed craft and artistry with a business savvy that kept his films popular for decades. Even a film like Vertigo, that he considered a box office failure, made back its money. It just didn't turn as big a profit as Psycho, Rear Window, or North by Northwest. A Hitchcock film could always bring you to the edge of your seat, or in some cases, hiding under it. He made you feel the frustration of a falsely accused Henry Fonda in The Wrong Man, or the tension of a wheelchair-bound Jimmy Stewart watching his girlfriend encounter a killer in an apartment across the courtyard. 
He could also engross you in the activity of a killer and make you look for every drop of blood along with Anthony Perkins' Norman Bates in Psycho as he cleaned the bathroom murder site. That was the key in all of Hitch's films, the level of engagement he had with the audience. He always hooked us, always made it so we didn't want to turn away from the screen for fear of missing something. He could be a bit of a sadist, putting us through agony as we watched characters we liked go through extreme and dangerous situations. But we loved him for every agonizing second. To celebrate Hitchcock, I speak with TCM host Ben Mankiewicz and Ball University's Richard L. Edwards. You can sign up for their course until July 14th and enjoy the films on TCM all month. So let's begin a podcast dedicated to geeking out over the master of suspense. First up is Ben Mankiewicz. Well, I wanted to ask you, this is going to be the third time TCM is doing one of these online classes with uh, Richard Edwards. You guys aren't an educational institution or anything. What is it that drives you to do these kind of programs and do these kind of things? Well, we're not an educational institution, but uh, we think of ourselves as the caretakers of this great art form. And part of loving these movies is talking about these movies and knowing about these movies. And while I am certainly not a professor or I do not teach a class, you know, it's funny when you start in television, they tell you to be conversational, but this is not a conversation for two minutes before the movie and for a minute after the movie or so. I'm, I'm giving you a little lecture about the movie and our audience has responded enthusiastically since Robert Osborne first started doing this in 1994. I mean, we could have started TCM and just merely uh, brought you the movies. I mean, that's our that's that's the thing that makes our that makes us so valuable is that we have these movies, but by curating them, we created this enormously valuable connection with our audience. And these MOOCs phrase that I still can't believe I'm using, uh, just are, feel like an extension of that, uh, giving people uh, the chance, if they want, and on their time mostly, to learn even more uh, about this art form that they're so emotionally invested in. It just felt like a natural next step when these things, you know, when, when these, these online courses became a, uh, became a thing that people do. And to go along with this course, TCM is programming an incredible array of Hitchcock films. Uh, Most of the time we see his stuff he's done in the United States, but you guys have dug back and are showing, I believe, even some of his silent films for this. Uh, We are. One of the great things about Hitchcock, and it's true, I I suppose, with with nearly every director, you could do it also with, with John Ford, but... With Hitchcock in particular, if you start at the beginning and go to the end, you see a real progression. First of all, you start with a guy who who knew what he was doing. It wasn't as if you know he, he did his his uh, his silence were hardly amateurish. They were they were the, the work of a guy who clearly understood what he was tr- a story that he was trying to tell visually. But if you follow him through to to, to to the mid-1970s when he was finished. Um, you see this really interesting progression. I mean, yes, and of course he gets uh, better, but you also see that, that just an expansion of some of the themes that, that he had in the silence uh, taken in a new direction. You could see a guy grow, and he was always good. So almost more than any other director, 
there's value from seeing Hitchcock from the beginning to the end. And as it is with so many of, of our fans, when if you're a Hitchcock fan, you are you want to deeply immerse yourself in Hitchcock. So uh, yeah, so we we start in the silent era when he started making movies, and we go uh, uh, right through uh, till the end. If you could point to one of the silent films or something in one of those silent films that particularly stands out for you in terms of watching that chronological progression, uh, is there a film that you think is particularly noteworthy for you or that had a scene that kind of made you go like, ah, I understand something about some of his later work after seeing that? The easiest one uh, would be The Lodger, uh, just because, you know, it's about looking for a serial killer in London. You know, it was, uh, you know, you can definitely see the influence of German expressionism in that movie. And it's also because I find that interesting in, in, in part just because of the way we're sort of, you know, the way we think of Hitchcock and the way every director that I talk to today at TCM has this, uh, not every director, but nearly every director, has this enormous reverence for Hitchcock. And the influence of Hitchcock on so many modern filmmakers is so uh, profound. And then just to know that, of course, at one point, Alfred Hitchcock was young, and he was influenced <laughs> by others, uh, which means that, of course, that, that now these directors, you know, because they are influenced by someone who was so profoundly influenced by German Expressionism, we have a through line from German Expressionism uh, right to, to movies uh, today. But, the you know, the lodger was, uh, you know, uh, there are... Uh, you see the, the, the beginning of the idea of the wrong man in the lodger. Right, which has surfaced again and again and again in, in, in Hitchcock movies, you know, probably most famously in North by Northwest. But if you watch The Lodger, in addition to seeing uh, Little Signs of Psycho, you certainly see Little Signs of, of North by Northwest among many Hitchcock films. But uh, if, you, if, if people could only watch one silent Hitchcock or they don't like silent movies and they're willing to only watch one, I would say to see The Lodger. Uh, and, you know, and also then his uh, Blackmail, which is also terrific, and that, that's his first uh, talkie, but it was initially shot uh, as a silent. So it's sort of converted, which makes it an interesting watch all by itself, in addition to being a typically suspenseful Hitchcock film. With a, with a, with a, with a cool signature location, too, also in, in Blackmails, it occurs to me, which you'll also see repeated so often in, in Hitchcock films. What do you think it is about Hitchcock that has made him remain so popular for so long? He's been dead for decades. What do you think it is about his particular style that has remained popular with the public? Well, I think he, he, he does two things. One, he appeals to serious film lovers. He appeals to film scholars. And then there's also just a mass market appeal. I mean, there's so few directors that have gotten that, that he can speak to a crowd that wants to have a glass of wine afterwards and talk about exactly what they've seen. And I'm not knocking that. I am included in that crowd. But I am also more included in the other crowd, which is just stuffing your face with popcorn as you sort of drop your jaw, get scared, and turn away from the screen. So uh, he does both, and, 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 and the best directors do, but he is sort of the, the perfect example of, a, of appealing to, uh, to both crowds and that there are plenty of serious film fans from here in the States and in Europe, you know, people like Truffaut who thought, you know, if you don't like Hitchcock, then you're not getting it and you don't, then you don't really love film. And I'm not sure you can say that about a lot of other directors. But he works definitely on those on, on two levels. Do you think the fact that he made films that were very popular and that did connect with audiences early on in his career, 
Do you think that hindered him in a certain way in terms of getting the respect as a real artist and craftsman? Because it's only been recently that Vertigo's made the top of the sight and sound list. And I'm just wondering if his kind of mainstream popularity in some way kind of hindered him being appreciated as an artist. I think that's probably true. I don't look back at Hitchcock and think, oh, that poor guy didn't get appreciated enough. But I hear you. It's a, it's certainly a, a fair point. That, But we've also, you know, we, we've we had this late in life for partly with the advent of cable television, partly because of Turner Classic Movies. I mean, I wasn't there yet, but this sort of appreciation with uh, this more mass market appeal of classic Hollywood that has uh, thankfully come to pass in the last, you know, I mean, we, we, we're 23 years old. It's certainly older than that. But yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you could say this, what you're saying about Hitchcock could be said about so many others. I mean, certainly it also could be said about Orson Welles. It wasn't until the 1970s that people started to recognize the brilliance of Citizen Kane. So, you know, when it started to be possible to see these movies in an easier way, whether you're watching it on television or whether you start to go to a video store and rent it, and then just as these communities opened up and, you know, film fans met film fans and started talking about movies, I think that that it happened in a in an organic way. So I think it's true what you're saying about Hitchcock, but uh, although, you know, I mean, he did get a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. It wasn't like it was, you know, it wasn't like nobody understood. It's not like he, I don't think he died thinking nobody appreciated me. I certainly hope not. No, but it did take the Academy all that time to give him the Lifetime Achievement Award and not it ever did. giving him a directing award. <laughs> No, look, look, Cary Grant and uh, and 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 Robert Mitchum and Barbara Stanwyck yeah. are three tremendous oversights by the Academy. But it's almost better, right? I mean, if <laughs> Cary Grant had won one Oscar, right, it still wouldn't have been enough. And if Hedgecock had won one Oscar, it wouldn't have been enough. So that you can look back on those three people and go, can you believe the Academy never gave these three people who might have been the very best at the thing they did, right? and that they never won an Oscar. I don't know. I think it makes it a better story. It, it, the, there is more glory in omission than in, <laughs> than in winning one Oscar. Well, it also seems, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, it also seems that he sometimes was criticized because he tended to work very much in a particular genre and style. And, you know, there's this sense like, oh, why doesn't he, you know, try something different? But it seems like, you know, he was perfecting his particular style and that there's you know a lot to be appreciated in that yeah i don't think it was in it it wasn't a it wasn't a genre that was taken i guess i'm you know part of this is my own speculation but it stands to reason why these movies would be so popular and that people would love working with them and it would they would be so finely crafted yet still wouldn't be entirely recognized for what they were it makes it, it, there's an incongruity there so I suspect that it was dismissiveness of the genre. But that said, it's not like it's not like crime films weren't appreciated. But there was a sense, you know, this these weren't the best years of our lives. This wasn't Mrs. Miniver. These weren't war films that showed the proud sacrifice of a people under siege, right? Now we see a movie like North by Northwest and we understand how sort of, you know, grand it is, but you know, it wasn't Ben Hur. So I suppose that had something to do with that. With how, you know, this is a, a town that is still struggling to find a way to appreciate comedy correctly, right? It's still, you know, if you if we're just talking about the academy, the academy still doesn't have a is not really does not have its head on right about about how it should deal with comedy, and that when you get a great great funny film, it's okay to say, 
yeah, this is one of the best movies of the year. It was really, really, really funny for a lot of people. So uh, I suspect that the genre, the sort of notion that it was on the cusp of horror, uh, probably made it easier to dismiss him. Because no question, I mean, I, I don't disagree with the premise that it took a while for people to recognize that he was sort of, you know, I don't know about undisputably the best director ever, but I think if you polled every working director today about who the best director of all time was, I'm going to guess that he's uh, that he's going to win if you narrow the field to directors who've heard of him. <laughs> Do you remember the first Hitchcock film you saw, the first one that made an impression on you? Yeah, it was definitely. It was North by Northwest. Um, I, I took a fairly long time to come to classic films, even with my family's history, because I grew up in, in Washington, D.C., and my, my dad was a, a Robert Kennedy's press secretary and ran George McGovern's campaign. He was president of National Public Radio when I was 10. That, to me, was the, he was the most famous person in the family by far. You know, I, he was recognized almost every day that I went out with him, and I, and so I knew that there was this family history with movies, and I knew that it was important, but I didn't, it didn't have any emotional connection. It seemed it was 3,000 miles away, and I didn't quite get it. And I like so many, like the, I am an example of the problem that, or not the problem, the challenge that TCM has right now, which is, you know, as always, it's always been true. How do you get 15, 16, 17-year-olds to appreciate a black-and-white movie, and I I didn't. <laughs> and so, uh, but my mom made me, uh, you know, charmingly uh, watch uh, a North by Northwest was on television one night. And the great thing about, what I love most about the story is that I always thought of it as the first black-and-white movie that I loved. Have you planned your vacation yet? You have a choice between sand and sunburn or mountain climbing and the Charlie horse. I find it all very enervating, but we should all have some kind of holiday. So, my suggestion is a quiet little tour, say about 2,000 miles. I have just made a motion picture, North by Northwest, to show you some of these delights. Now for the best news of all. You can enjoy this wonderful vacation while seated comfortably in this theater. I promise you nothing but entertainment, a vacation from all your problems, as it was for me. Like, I was into that story. I, I, I was so charmed by Cary Grant. I couldn't, I was so frustrated that these people were just so blind to the obvious fact that they had the wrong guy. Uh, Leonard. Have you met our distinguished guest? He's a well-tailored one, isn't he? My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. Elusiveness, however misguided... Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Did you call me Kaplan? I know you're a man of many names, but I'm perfectly willing to accept your current choice. Current choice? My name is Thornhill. Roger Thornhill. There's never been anything else. Of course. So obviously, your friends picked up the wrong package when they bundled me out here in the car. Do sit down, Mr. Kaplan. I told you, I'm not Kaplan, whoever he is. I remember thinking, we don't even know what it is they're doing. Like, why am I so, I don't even, so I got the whole Hitchcock uh, MacGuffin thing, even though I had no word for it then. And then, of course, uh, you know, realizing a few years later, maybe many years later, 10 years, I don't know, that uh, my favorite, uh, the first black and white movie I ever loved was, uh, was in color. And I'm just, and I was just remembering it wrong. 
but it was it was definitely a, a North by Northwest as a as a young person, and then I think Notorious when my appreciation of, of classic films uh, started, just because I remember being unbelievably tense as Cary Grant carried Ingrid Bergman down the stairs, and nobody had a gun. It's really just a question of whether Claude Rains is going to speak, and that's your attention. And I, uh, I thought that was great. So do those films remain your favorite of Hitchcock's, or has the your favorite Hitchcock changed over the years? I, you know, your favorite Hitchcock question is almost like your favorite movie. Like, I don't know. I really, like right now, because I've talked about it, I talked about it with uh, Alexander Philippe, and I would talked about it with... Uh, uh, and then we did it again for a, another guest programmer. I mean, right now, if you ask me what my favorite Hitchcock movie is, I'd probably say Rope, because it's really fresh in my mind. By what right did you dare decide that that boy in there was inferior and therefore could be killed? Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you served food from his grave? I don't know what you thought or what you are, but I know what you've done. You've murdered! You've strangled the life out of a fellow human being who could live and love as you never could and never will again. What are you doing? It's not what I'm going to do, Brandon. It's what society's going to do. I don't know what that'll be, but I can guess and I can help. You're going to die, Brandon, both of you. You're going to die. If you take Hitchcock's uh, entire resume, you know, no, a few people are putting it in the top five. I was going to say that it was, you know, a forgotten Hitchcock classic, but that's that's too much. But uh, but I like it that it's undervalued. So I love Rope, you know, uh, and I uh, yes, I still love Notorious and North by Northwest. But what am I not going to? I mean, I, I can't. I, I never don't watch the birds ever. There's no point that I don't watch the birds. Another thing that now I think, why are the birds doing it? How you couldn't make a movie now where they didn't have some. There wasn't. We didn't go back to some. Some. We didn't go back to. We didn't go to, cut to Washington where bird experts fly out to Bodega Bay and they try to understand. You know what these birds ate that poisoned their minds that made them attack people and how to reverse it. And Hitchcock, yeah, he didn't care. Doesn't matter why they're doing it. They're just doing it. How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about our good friends, the birds. <laughs> That's the damnest thing I ever saw. Birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. Yes, they attack the children, attack them. What's the matter with all the birds? Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. Those gulls attack. Impossible. They came in right down the chimney. Why are they doing this? It's the end of the world. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. That would hardly be possible. Mitch, don't! The five continents of the world contain more than a hundred billion birds. All at once, the birds were everywhere. They're coming! They're coming! And maybe they're going to continue, or maybe they just stopped at the end of the weekend. There's so many uh, uh, Hitchcock movies that I love, and, and partly in preparing for this, and I, I watched so many again. You know, Strangers on a Train, which to me is very, you know, it, it's uh, thematically similar to Rope. I, I, I couldn't love Strangers on a Train more. If people are signing up for the class and watching these films on TCM, is there something that you would tell them in, like, watching the films, some advice you would give them, something to look for, or do you... Would you say that watching them in chronological order is kind of like the best way to kind of experience this? I think there's value in watching them in chronological order. I don't want to put any, you know, I never want to feel like watching movies is homework. You can watch them 
the great thing about Hitchcock movies is that, you know, I've now seen Rope twice in five weeks. If it were on right now, you know, again, I didn't have to do anything. I just turned on my television and Rope was on. I'd watch it again. The great thing about Hitchcock is that you can sort of come in at any point and appreciate it, and it can reach you emotionally in a number of ways. There is certainly value in seeing some of these movies two or three times and thinking of them academically. But even saying the words that, that you should think about a movie academically scares people off. You can sit back, put your feet up with whoever you want to watch a movie with or by yourself and watch any of these movies from The Lodger straight through to Family Plot and, and enjoy them. Well, I have to say that hearing you talk about having to watch these films repeatedly makes it sound like the best job I could possibly imagine. <laughs> it is. I mean, I will. It is, it is a great job. I mean, you know, I, the, the, my only... It's not a complaint. My only observation about it is that oh, I never quite, when I'm doing these interviews or whether I'm preparing for a big sort of month of programming like the like we're doing this month with Hitchcock, you never entirely feel prepared because you can always do more. You can always read more. You could always have watched it a little carefully. The problems with watching a movie at home is that no matter how hard you try to put yourself in just a frame of mind of watching the movie, Oh, you might check your phone. You might get a phone call, right? So I could always check it again. There's certainly always more I could read. And you sit down with somebody like Alexander, and I always think I'm sitting down with somebody who knows more than I am. Every interview I've ever done, I think I'm sitting down with somebody who knows more than I do. But there's tremendous value in the preparation. And, and you're, overall, you're, you're right. It's a, I, I can't believe I have this job. Still, I can't believe it's been. I've been this is going to be a, I'm right at 14 years, and I, it's still... I still feel like I just got there. It still feels new and fresh to me. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to talk about Hitchcock. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. That was TCM host Ben Mankiewicz. The last time I spoke with Richard L. Edwards, it was about the film noir class he did with TCM. So before we get into Hitchcock, I wanted Edwards to talk a little bit about his partnership with TCM for these online courses. It really started with a partnership that goes back many, many years with uh, Shannon Clute, who is the director of new business development at TCM. And he and I have collaborated on various different projects, and we knew each other from a previous life when we were both assistant professors in Northern California at a small college. And we have always been looking at ways to look at films and to bring our passion and our interest in films to the broadest possible audience. And so he looks at it from the Turner Classic Music side, and I look at it from the online learning side. I work at Ball State, and I am the executive director of a research unit that looks at better ways of delivering online and blended courses. And so these courses that I partner with, with Turner Classic Movies, brings together both this real deep passion and film love around classic movies, plus um, a desire to create highly engageable, highly entertaining, free educational opportunities for people who are fans of these films. And you also have a background in film. You studied film at USC, was it? Yes. So my background is is my I have a PhD in critical studies from the USC School of Cinematic Arts right there in Los Angeles. I have 
uh, spent most of my career as a scholar has been studying films that are much more in the film noir and Hitchcock vein. This is my area of specialization. So I've published a book on film noir. I'm currently working on an article on Alfred Hitchcock that's coming out of the work I'm doing on this course. So this, these are research areas of mine in addition to just the teaching experience. Recently, TCM and you have partnered on this Hitchcock class, and this is the third time you guys are offering something like this. You've done something on film noir and on slapstick comedy. So what is it that you are offering to people, and what is it that you are kind of hoping that people will gain from this? Oh, it's a great question, Beth. Um, We definitely want people who sign up for the course, and the course is open right now for enrollment. Enrollment in the new Hitchcock course is available through uh, July 14th, so it's not too late to sign up for the most current course. What we are looking at, both myself and all of my great colleagues over at Turner Classic Movies, is to create uh, and generate more insight into the films of Alfred Hitchcock. This is really meant to be an engaging learning experience. It's broken down into daily modules that you can uh, get delivered to your mobile device or to your computer that allow you to get a little bit more insight beyond just a thumbnail sketch of each of these movies. And so the goal of the course is to help people who are broadly interested in film to gain a little bit more understanding of how Uh, what type of genres Alfred Hitchcock tended to focus on during his illustrious 50-year career, how Hitchcock worked with his amazing stars such as Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, Jimmy Stewart, and, uh, you know, those great classic Hollywood stars, as well as digging into how this most singular director who really had an incredible presence as a director was also this amazing collaborator who worked with artists as diverse as Salvador Dali, the title designer Saul Bass, and the great composer Bernard Herrmann. So we really feel that it's probably best understood broadly as a film appreciation class, but we do hope that people who participate also really enjoy that the course is really a, uh, a reason for a social community to spin up. And so part of what I absolutely love about these partnerships I do with Turner Classic Movies is under the hashtag Hitchcock50, we have a vibrant community of thousands of film fans who are sharing their thoughts on Hitchcock in real time every day. And so even in addition to some of these modules that we deliver as a course-like experience, there's really just an opportunity for anyone, even if they don't sign up for the course, to just jump in uh, to a Hitchcock uh, conversation following the hashtag Hitchcock50. Now, I took the film noir class, which was fabulous. And what what people should know is that you can kind of dive in as deeply or as shallowly <laughs> as you want. You can because you offer a lot of stuff that you could just read and just, yeah. you know, gain information from there. Or you can engage really fully with you and with the community of people taking the class. No, absolutely. Um The big word that I stress with anyone who's curious about the course is it is highly flexible. So you nailed it. It can be a deep dive where you spend a lot of time going through all the materials we freely make available through our course website. But it also can be just a lighter touch. If you just want a little bit more knowledge, you can actually spend a few minutes each day just engaging with the course. Some of the things that we just that I'm so thankful for when I work with TCM and also my great crew here at Ball State is 
in the Hitchcock course, we have a daily video lecture that I recorded with Dr. Wes Gehring, who has published over 36 film books. And we do a roundtable discussion for, and we've done it, we did it for every single day of the course that's going to be launched. People can just hear Wes and I talk about Hitchcocking, spend just anywhere between five to 10 minutes to just getting uh, additional insight on Hitchcock. We've also in this version of the course have added a gamification element. And so there are many games you can play. So on Mondays, we have a visual game that uh, we show you stills from films that will appear in July on TCM, and you have to pick whether or not it was directed by Hitchcock or by another director. So it's like this rapid visual literacy test. We also have a version of Hangman um, so that you can learn some of the famous names that collaborated with Hitchcock in an interactive uh, minigame. And then we also have a game called Strangers on a Quiz where you can uh, do the kind of quiz-up logic people are familiar with and just rapidly see how well you uh, have, you know, that you already have knowledge about or interest about um, Hitchcock. So we try with that, what I've just been relating, to make it very accessible. A lot of it is watching very short uh, videos and a lot of it's really hopefully engaging gameplay. And then, yes, wrapped around that, there are different web pages you can read for more depth. But it really is designed to try to fit a wide spectrum of uh, viewers. One of the things that's great about this is TCM is going to be serving up a huge collection of Hitchcock films that you can watch along with the class. This seems kind of unprecedented to have this much kind of available? Yeah, it is. I mean, I I talk about this all the time internally, so it's kind of fun to talk about it on the radio and make it a little more public. I've taught courses on famous directors before, and if you're teaching it at the college level, it's a 15-week course, and the best you ever do is about one film a week. Sometimes you do a double bill. You might show two films a week. What's so amazing about this six-week course, which is literally the, you know, less than half the length of a normal college course, people who are subscribers to TCM will be able to see 40 films. And so what's fabulous about that is we are in the era of binge-watching. People are logging on to all sorts of services to watch a lot of similar material in a compressed time frame. And I am telling you right now, the best binge-watching anyone's going to do this year is watching 40 films of Hitchcock in a compressed time frame. You will see patterns. You will gain insights just solely from that act. So what TCM is offering the public is absolutely unprecedented, and I definitely, even if people don't sign up for the course, I encourage people to binge watch Hitchcock because that's going to be your best education. If you watch his films, and, and TCM's doing a great public service because it's all the way from his silent film classics, films such as The Lodger, all the way through his last film, Family Plot. And so it's a chronological festival that allows people to see each week Hitchcock's maturation as uh, one of the true visual and cinematic geniuses of the 20th century. And so, yeah, I can't speak to that point more highly, which is that TCM is independently of the course doing a great public service. And why is Hitchcock a good 
director to focus on? What is it about him that decades after he's passed away and decades after his last film, we're still fascinated by his movies and um, they still draw people at retrospectives. And here in San Diego, we have these outdoor cinemas that show Hitchcock on a regular basis that fill the house. What is it about him that you think makes him unique? Yeah, uh, several things. I really think that Alfred Hitchcock had an unusually long and productive career. There are very few filmmakers who began in the silent film era, and Hitchcock directs his very first film in 1925, before the advent of sound, before the jazz singer at Warner Brothers. And you can just even imagine, even if you're a casual film fan, there really weren't a lot of directors who moved from the silent film era to the sound film era. And if they did move to the sound era, they didn't end up literally having an additional 45-year career after they transferred to sound. So part of what is so absolutely amazing about Alfred Hitchcock is to study the films of Alfred Hitchcock, is to get an education of the evolution of 20th century cinema. And he goes through every major uh, time period and every major um, advancement in film. Um, He goes from the silent film era to make these amazing British uh, sound films highlighted by probably his best film of the British period, The 39 Steps. Then he moves um, with a contract offer from David O. Selznick to Hollywood in 1940. His first Hollywood film, Rebecca, wins the Oscar for Best Film. And then he's off for a 10-year period during the classic Hollywood system heyday, making masterworks with um, amazing talent such as... uh, uh, Shadow of a Doubt and Notorious and Spellbound with Gregory Peck and there's Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. But then where most directors at that point would probably have slowed down, in his 50s, Hitchcock makes his absolute masterworks in his peak years at Warner Brothers and Paramount. So in his 50s, he starts to make films such as Rear Window, Vertigo, and North by Northwest that are just absolutely astonishing. Then on the doorstep as he's turning 60, he has his greatest commercial hit with a what was supposed to just be a low-budget horror film, Psycho, that then kicks off the final 17 years of his, uh, 16 years of his career. Here we have a quiet little motel. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. and none of us can ever get out. What's so fascinating about Hitchcock and why I think he sticks with people is he's always been a master of visual storytelling. He's worked in all these different eras, and unlike many other directors, he just seemed to have a higher gear that just kept going up decade after decade, peaking for most scholars like myself with the you know, exquisite masterworks from Strangers on a Train to Psycho, but almost all of his other films are highly viewable. And then probably the other way to answer your question uh, more briefly 
is he was a genuine auteur. He was the author of these films, and based on the way Francois Truffaut talks about auteur theory and what matters to make a filmmaker an author of a film, there has to be a personality and a personal vision that is put into these films. And the one thing no one will ever mistake when they're watching a Hitchcock film is thinking that he's all over the map. Hitchcock had an intense visual focus and an intense thematic focus, and I think people are really drawn to that, that Hitchcock put himself into all of these films um, in ways that still matter today and that still resonate with audiences, you know, decades after he made his last film in the mid-1970s. Now, sometimes Hitchcock gets, I don't know if it's criticized, but sometimes gets pushed aside a little bit because he consistently worked in the same genre. And sometimes people say, well, you know, all he did was these suspense films or these thrillers. But is there anything really wrong with somebody perfecting a particular, like, kind of storytelling? No, I don't think so. And and, and and I think that part of what's going to be the fun if people end up taking the course is I think they'll start to realize that Hitchcock had a lot of range and a lot of diverse interests. And while there is a way to say that he's just the master of suspense, which is the famous shorthand for his entire output, he was a person who was endlessly restless with a visual imagination, and he also was constantly pushing what were going to be the storytelling capabilities of modern cinema. So his early films are silent films, then he moves into sound films, then he moves into silent films in Hollywood. But then in the 1950s, he makes a 3D film. Dialem for Murder. Then he moves into widescreen films. Uh, North by Northwest is just this glorious Technicolor widescreen experience. And part of what I'm trying to get at with that is even if some of his thematic preoccupations are somewhat narrow, this gentleman had a broad imagination. And if you do watch all 50 of the films on TCM in order, you're never going to feel ever a sense of repetition. He was not repeating himself. What he was doing was he was perfecting his art form. And I agree with you, Beth, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in fact, many of the greatest artists are known for a kind of singular idiom that is attracted, that that is identified with them in highly codified ways. And to me, that's not a bad thing. Well, he also seemed, in addition to being someone who was a master of his craft, he also seemed to have a certain business savvy. You point out, you know, he he tried 3D, uh, you know, he he tried things, he went into television, he tried things that seemed to be also kind of smart from a business perspective. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, Hitchcock, Hitchcock understood that films were not only art, films are a business. And it's very expensive to make films. And you're not going to make a 50-year career um, in the cinema if your films are not returning the money back to the studios that are investing in them. So Hitchcock always had one eye on the ledger and one eye on the soundstage. But what I love about Hitchcock is all of his interest in business, as far as I'm concerned, 
emphasized the importance of the audience. Hitchcock had a deep respect for his audience, and he didn't have a cynical relationship with them. And he wanted to give the audience something that they wanted, but each time he always had a little Hitchcock twist. He was endlessly inventive. And later in his career, I think part of the challenge that happens with people who are only lightly familiar with Hitchcock is they might know him from his iconic television series and those campy intros that he did, or they might know him from some of the documentaries that have been made in recent years that emphasize his 60s career around, um, say, Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie. But if you look at the overall arc of his career, this was a director whose films almost always made money. He had very few commercial flops. He was always attentive to the desires and needs of the audience, and he always at the heart of his desire to be a filmmaker is he wanted to tell a story that would reach as many people as possible. And and I think that's another reason why his cinema lives on and why um, a network like TCM can show 40 films that are going to find a lot of eyeballs because these are films you can keep returning to again and again because they're not just minor art films. They're major entertainments that have artistic elements in them. Well, it seems like, too, in, in talking about him like this, that his his concern for the audience is part of what does, I think, give him this longevity because his films were never pretentious. He never seemed to be like, I'm making this, you know, arty film that's above, you know, the the common audience. He wanted people to enjoy it. And so you never get this level of pretension in his film, even though there's a great amount of craft. Yes, I, I, I agree. And here's where I also want to give a big shout out to his wife, Alma Ravel, because Alma is essential to understanding that part of the longevity of Hitchcock. Alma, who started five years before Hitchcock in the film business, and they met when um, Hitchcock got his first job at Famous Players Lasky back in the early 20s in uh, Great Britain. He ends up marrying Alma, Hit, uh, Alma Ravel, who becomes Alma Ravel Hitchcock, and his wife, who is with him for his entire career, from his first film all the way to Family Plot, really helped Hitch always hone in on the right story. And uh, Charles uh, Champlin, uh, the famous uh, L.A. Uh, critic um, once said the Hitchcock touch had four hands and two of them were Alma's. And Alma had a touch for picking stories that really were going to fit um, Hitchcock's uh, talents. And uh, one of my favorite stories, when you learn about how Hitchcock came up with his next creative project, is that if Alma said no to a story idea, he just abandoned it quickly because he always wanted his wife's buy-in because she had a great nose, too, for that balance between what was going to be both commercially successful, but that was also going to feed her husband's hunger for cinematic inventiveness. And I think it's that secret that has propelled these films into the pantheon of classic cinema because they're both. They're these vast, big, star-laden spectacles of glory, as well as these amazing, artistic, personal films that have Hitchcock's personality in every frame. Do you remember the first Hitchcock film you saw and what it was about it that kind of, did it suck you in immediately? Did you fall in love immediately with him? Yeah, I, I, I 
definitely being a gentleman of a certain age. The first time I ever saw Hitchcock was in the 1970s on television. I'm watching the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV series. So the first time I ever saw Hitchcock, he was the impresario who introduced uh, these thrillers in the mold of a Twilight Zone episode. My memory always remembers those. I'm looking to see what lies ahead. The old Romans used to tell the future by cutting animals open and examining their entrails. Due to some objections by anti-vivisectionists, we have to omit the butchering, but through the wonders of modern science, we are not denied a glimpse into the future. Besides, it's much more tidy this way. This is an X-ray of a goat an animal which the ancients found to be full of strange portents. Hmm, it looks like rain. I can see this will also give one insight about the past. For example, I now know what happened to those car keys I lost last summer. As to the immediate future, either this X-ray plate wasn't properly developed or else we are in for a very dismal time of it for the next minute. I really didn't get into Hitchcock um, in a major way as a scholar until my first, in, in a major way as like a fan that really kind of understood something special is going on here until the 1980s when I was in college in my first film course. So as I was a freshman in college, I took an intro to film course and there were a couple Hitchcock films that were being screened. And I remember seeing Shadow of a Doubt when I was 18 in this film class, and it just wowed me. Um, it was The course opened with Citizen Kane, so I'd already been familiar with Joseph Cotton, but this was such a different role for Joseph Cotton, and Teresa Wright was revelatory. Uncle Charlie, I know a secret about you you don't think I know. What secret? Remember I said you couldn't hide anything from me because I'd find it out? Well, now I know there was something in the evening paper about you. About me in the evening paper? About you. And that's why you played that game with Ann and Roger. You didn't want us to know and you wanted to tear the paper. But now I know you might as well tell me. <laughs> well, you've got me there, Charlie. Only it wasn't about me. It was about uh, someone I used to know. There. None of your business. Oh, Uncle Charlie, you're hurting me. Oh, Charlie. Your hand. Charlie, I didn't mean to hurt you. I was just fooling. <laughs> it was nothing. Just, just some gossip. Not very pretty about someone I once met up with. <laughs> Not for you to read. Get it. Good night, young Charlie. Good night, Uncle Charlie. Pleasant dreams. And and I've always been a noir guy, so of course my first Hitchcock films, the noir Hitchcock. But Shadow of a Doubt just grabbed me from the beginning, and then we also saw Rear Window, his great film with Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly and Raymond Burr. 
Jeff, if you could only see yourself. What's the matter? Sitting around looking out of the window to kill time is one thing, but doing it the way you are with binoculars and, and wild opinions about every little thing you see is, is disease. What do you think I consider it? Recreation? I don't know what you consider it, but if you don't stop it, I'm getting out of here. What's what is it you're looking for? I just want to find out what's the matter with the salesman's wife, that's all. Does that make me sound like a madman? What makes you think there's something the matter with A lot her? of things. She's an invalid. She demands constant care. Yet neither the husband or anybody else been in to see her all day. Why? Maybe she died. Where's the doctor? Where's the undertaker? She could be sleeping under sedatives. He's in there now. There's nothing to see. What do you think? There is some. I've seen it through that window. I've seen bickering and family quarrels and mysterious trips at night, knives and saws and ropes. And now since last evening, not a sign of the wife. All right, now you tell me where she is. I don't what, what know. What's she doing? Where is she? Maybe he's leaving his wife. I don't know. I don't care. Lots of people have knives and saws and ropes around their houses. Not, and not lots the... of men don't speak to their wives all day. Lots of wives nag and men hate them and trouble starts. But very, very few of them end up in murder, if that's what you think. Uh, it's pretty hard for you to keep away from that word, isn't it? Those two films together, one a film noir, black and white film from the 1940s, and a gigantic widescreen Technicolor masterpiece from the 1950s, were my two footholds, and I've been climbing, you know, up the mountain of Hitchcock from those two toeholds ever since. These are films you have to return to again and again. I have started, um, and I'll be re-watching all of the films on air, so I've had to clear out my DVR so that I can record <laughs> 40 films in a row. I'm going to try and watch a lot of them live and share my thoughts live on Twitter on Friday nights during the festival. Uh, so if people want to come join me and hear my thoughts about these films, I'll be live tweeting on the Hitchcock 50 hashtag Fridays in July at 8 p.m. or 9.30 p.m., uh, depending on the film. The, the final point I just want to wrap up with is even when you're just introduced to Hitchcock, if he gets under your skin, just consider yourself lucky because to spend your lifetime watching and re-watching these films, to me, is a pleasure. And Hitchcock's reputation within kind of Hollywood and the critical community has shifted and changed because recently, I think, Vertigo finally moved to the top of the sight and sound you know, best 100 films. And when that film initially came out, that was one of his few kind of financial, I don't know if it was a failure, yeah. but it didn't do as well yeah. as his others. So has his position kind of in film history been shifting and changing? Yeah, cause, and, and it's absolutely fascinating. I love that question, Beth, because it goes to the heart of the Hitchcock phenomenon as well. In the 1960s, right before the publication of the famous set of interviews that he did um, that ended up as a book called Hitchcock Truffaut, even as he's making these incredible entertainments that we now see as some of the greatest films of the entire 20th century, such as Vertigo, Rear Window, and North by Northwest, he really enters into the 60s as a filmmaker understood more as an, in, in, as an entertainer than an artist. Part of that entertainment aspect comes out of the fact that people are familiar with his TV show and they see him as a kind of light comedic entertainer. But starting with the Truffaut book and then the great early scholarship of Robin Wood, people started to take Hitchcock more and more seriously. And so you get 
examples of films like, say, Vertigo, which is always funny because everyone will always say Vertigo was a flop. And it's a very common error because that's how Hitchcock himself described Vertigo. But Vertigo made back all of its money. Vertigo did not flop. It was not, he did not lose money on Vertigo. All that happened with Vertigo is he just made his money back. It, he, it cost uh, millions to make, and he made millions in, in um, box office, but it was a wash. And, but, and, and why that was so disappointing to Hitchcock is previous films like North by Northwest would return four times the investment. And so compared to what North by Northwest was doing and Rear Window, yes, comparatively, it did not make anywhere near the profits of these films that are surrounding it. So he personally in his own head said, that's a flop. But, and, but what becomes weird about what he does when Vertigo does not meet his personal box office expectations, is he pulls it out of circulation for years, for a couple decades. And so part of what people struggle with now is with all of this material available, they have trouble imagining that back in the late 1960s and early 70s, you could not see a copy of Vertigo. Even if you wanted to see the film, he had pulled it from circulation. I wake up at night seeing that man fall from the roof and I try to reach out to it. It wasn't your fault. Do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? You jumped into the bay. You didn't know where you were. You gasped, but you didn't, didn't know. Jump. I didn't jump. I fell. You Why told me you I jump? fell. Why did you jump? Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. And so part of what's always fascinating about Hitchcock is several of his films that he is most seen uh, critically with today were out of circulation for decades, and that, I, that, it, that, had, that affected his critical reputation. Nowadays, his work is much more accessible. You have festivals like 50 Years of Hitchcock on TCM that really restore the arc of his career to the audience so that people can watch how his film, how his career develops from 1925 to 1976. And when you watch the entire arc, you just start to recognize that the work was always first rate and amazing, even if not every single picture uh, achieved the uh, popularity and success. And then the final uh, point to conclude this point on is you are correct that Science Sound Magazine recently uh, named Vertigo instead of Citizen Kane for the first time as the greatest film ever made in popular cinema. It's a long overdue recognition for Hitchcock, a director who never won a single Academy Award for directing, um, even though he has a Best Picture Oscar for Rebecca, is just amazing to me that this was one of those true giants who the lifetime body of his work um, will stand the test of time. We just showed Rebecca here in San Diego as part of a program I work on called Famous First, and it was his first Hollywood film that he did here with David O. Selznick. Was that film a turning point for him in terms of how he approached filmmaking? Because that was, working with Selznick must have been a little bit difficult because Selznick yeah. had a strong personality and a strong vision for what he wanted to see on the screen. Did that change him in any way in terms of how he approached filmmaking and, and trying to maintain the control he wanted? Absolutely. Um, when, you know, he had reached by the end of the 1930s, I believe he reached 
what he could develop through the studio apparatus of the British film industry. Um, so he was always itching, even from his first films that he was directing, to work with um, the Hollywood studios and the Hollywood film technicians and the Hollywood stars, you know, to be able to uh, cast uh, A-list talent such as in Rebecca, it's Laurence Olivier. Oh, I was carried away by her. Enchanted by her, as everyone was. And when I was married, I was told I was the luckiest man in the world. She was so lovely, so accomplished, so amusing. She's got the three things that really matter in a wife, everyone said. Breeding, brains, and beauty. And I believed them completely. But I never had a moment's happiness with her. She was incapable of love, or tenderness, or decency. You didn't love her. You didn't love her. It really is a turning point. Rebecca is a amazing film that I think is an overlooked masterpiece that does a lot of things that, say, Citizen Kane does later in the same year in similar ways with its use of powerful motifs, missing signifiers like who's the first Mrs. De Winter and the on the present letter R, which always reminds me a little bit of Rosebud. Towards that, once he was finally given the machinery of a professional Hollywood studio, there is no doubt in my mind Hitchcock knew exactly what to do with it, and it's Rebecca that really starts a stream of films through the 1940s that constantly up his craft until he gets to a film like Strangers on a Train in 1951, where he amazingly finds yet another gear uh, all the way through Psycho. And do you have a personal favorite Hitchcock film? Yeah, I, I definitely have a uh, fondness for a couple different sets of films. I'm a big fan of the spy thrillers of the 1930s. The espionage genre is one of my favorite genres, and so I love films like the original The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, The 39 Steps, and films like that because they just have a liveliness and a momentum uh, for me as a viewer that even his latter films don't, don't quite have the same kind of rhythmic exuberance that I think those films have. Um, and then I'm also extremely partial to his three uh, noir masterpieces from my perspective. So I love Shadow of a Doubt, Notorious, and Strangers on a Train. Those are just always going to have a special place in my heart. But if I had to pick the one film that just hypnotically I probably can't turn off if I get to the opening credits is a film like Strangers on a Train, which is, again, one of his near-perfect masterpieces. I can watch the story of Guy and Bruno over and over again. It's just a, an exceptionally uh, great film based on a novel by uh, Patricia Highsmith. Want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder? You want to hear the busted light socket in the bathroom or the uh, carbon monoxide in the garage? Neither one. I... I may be old-fashioned, but I thought murder was against the law. What is a life for two guys? Some people are better off dead. Like your wife and my father, for instance. Oh, that reminds me of a wonderful idea I had once. I used to put myself to sleep at night, figuring it out. Now, let's say that, that you'd like to get rid of your wife. It's a morbid thought. No, 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 no. Just suppose. 
Let's say that you had a very good reason. Now, let's, let's, no, no, let's, let's say. Now, you'd be afraid to kill her. You know why? You'd get caught. And what would trip you up? The motive. Ah, now, here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruce. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. We're coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father. Crisscross. What? Oh, we do talk the same language, don't we? Well, sure, Bruno, we talk the same language. Thanks for the lunch. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought the lamb chops were a little overdone myself. Nice meeting you. Now, you think my theory's okay, guy? You like it? Sure, Bruno, sure. They're all okay. And just talk a little bit more about working with TCM, because it seems like they do so much for film preservation and film history. And, you know, it seems a bit unique for what's basically a corporation to, yes. to take part in that in, in such a, a strong and compelling oh, way. Oh, absolutely. I, I just think that they, you know, and I can only talk about this from my own personal perspective, but I think as a network, they are the best network in the United States at curating and providing context for the films they show on air. I love their hosted introductions uh, that they craft so carefully so that the audience has a little bit of knowledge of the primetime films before they watch it. But then it's the thoughtfulness of their curation of how they string together these festivals and really think through, regardless of what the programming theme is, of how the organization of the titles makes the most sense for that filmmaker, that genre, that body of films. And then, yes, because they're the epicenter of the network is classic film, they have to be concerned with all of these other things, which is that we are still at risk of many of these great films deteriorating and being lost for all time to us. And so there there has to be attention paid to film preservation. There has to be uh, attention paid to generating things like festivals so that audiences understand why um, these films matter so much. And so, yes, I think TCM does a lot of uh, very valuable things around the maintenance and the importance of classic film as a key part of just American culture and world culture itself. So, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And if people are interested in this course, where's the best place for them to go get more information and to sign up? Yeah, the best place to go is uh, TCM has set up a very easy portal for everyone to uh, jump in and sign up. It's hitchcock50.tcm.com. Um, so if you go to that page, there's an Enroll Now link. Um, there's also the schedule of all the films that are going to show on the network. And so absolutely, um, if people are interested, just go to hitchcock50.tcm.com and uh, sign up. It's absolutely free, absolutely flexible. Um, if people do complete all six weeks of the course by passing 
a short multiple choice quiz at the end of every week. Uh, there is a certificate of completion that they can receive. It's not backed by any accreditation. It's just a nice piece of paper to have, but it's beautifully designed and um, it's a memento of having gone through this experience. So if people are interested, you know, definitely check all this stuff out. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for offering another one of these classes. They are so much fun to take, and you just learn so much, and it's fun to engage with other people who have a similar passion. Well, thank you, Beth, and I appreciate you taking the time to get the word out about this course because we definitely have plenty of open seats remaining for anyone who wants to learn. That's the best part about a digital course. Even when you get tens of thousands of (laughs) students, I can spin up another 10,000 seats anytime I need to because it's an open online course. So, yeah, uh, everyone's welcome, and thanks for, um, you know, talking with me today. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. was Professor Richard L. Edwards, who's conducting the TCM Ball University online Hitchcock class running through August. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Please check out my archives for more on TCM, including their classic film festival and their spotlight programming. And I'd love to get your feedback, so please consider leaving a review or rating so more people can discover Cinema Junkie. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.